Hello and welcome to the Albion Obsessed podcast. You join us on the back of what was a frustrating one-all draw with Sheffield United. But before we dissect that painful one, <laughs> let's see who we've got on the show today. We welcome back Joe. Joe, my friend, how are you? Hello, Tom. Uh, my life is about as organised as Albion's defence at the moment. Uh, so things are going well. Uh, yeah. No, I'm all right, Tom. How are you? How are you? <laughs> that was an absolute burn. Yeah, man, I, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good, mate. Just sort of like at school, just counting down to the, the Christmas. We've started the nativity. That's how you know it's Christmas season. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> if you'll see me, if you hear me humming Christmas songs, do not be alarmed. I know it's November and I'm disgusted by myself as well. Uh, we also welcome Sony. Sony, my friend, welcome back. How are you? I'm alive. It's the best that I can do. It is... 2.03 in the afternoon here, and I have dinner plans after this, so I'm very excited. Oh, fancy. And we are also welcomed, we also welcome, I should say, our guest today, Mark Abraham, O-B-E. Mark, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated after yesterday, obviously, but we'll talk about that. But I'm, I'm, I can't complain. I'm very well, and I thank you for inviting me on your, uh, on your show. That's absolutely fine, Mark. It's an absolute pleasure uh, to be here. I'm really eager to pick your brains about your new book. But before we get into that, Mark, whenever we have a guest on the show, we always ask them three very important questions. It just helps us and listeners and viewers help to get to know you a little bit more as a Brighton fan. So the sure. first question, um, when was your first Brighton game? My, my first Brighton game, I tried to work it out earlier and I spoke to my friend Alex, who I, who's a fellow season ticket holder, and it was 2015, 25th of January, probably against, Ar uh, against Arsenal when we lost 3-2. And it's significant because, and I will come clean immediately, I was an Arsenal fan because I'm from northwest London originally. And I made the transition to supporting the Albion. And that was kind of the, the time when I was sw swapping teams. And I know it's very taboo and it's very controversial in some circles to switch team. But I have now lived in Brighton longer than I ever lived in London. Uh, I am Albion obsessed, so I, I felt I should. Uh, I, I was qualified to follow you on Twitter and be on the show, um, but now I'm a fully fledged uh, Albion fan. So I did support Arsenal. I did transition. My first league game, I think, was against Middlesbrough on the 19th of December, 2015. So I kind of, I got a bit of help uh, with the, with the dates and the. But I remember, the, I specifically remember going to the Amex for Albion versus Arsenal for that FA Cup. I think it was third or fourth round when we lost, and I was just. I was so impressed with Albion, um, and I was in my transition period, uh, moving to a fully, a full hundred percent Albion fan. I hope that's not too controversial for your for your listeners, but I Ooh, thought I'd no. be honest and go, you know, yeah, we, this, we, this, this is my we football journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we appreciate the honesty, and we, you know, we, there's there's no gatekeeping on this show. You know, lots of us have come from different walks of life, come to football and the Albion at different times. So yeah, um, we're very happy that you decided to support us instead. Hundred percent, <laughs> Joe. Over to you. Has there been a favourite player over the over the years um, that you've been watching the Albion? Um, there's been quite a few exciting ones, and from 2015, we've we've gone places. Um, so Oof. yeah, any any players that stand out? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I I joined the gang. I think two years before we were promoted to the Premier League. So you know, the stalwarts, Glenn Murray and 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 Dunkey and Gross and Solly. 
has just been so consistent and such uh, such hard workers. I mean, it's the, the, sometimes it's the no frills, isn't it? They just turn out week after week and actually just do a bloody good job. Um, but then in recent years, obviously, Kukurea I was a massive fan of. Um, obviously, Tarek, when Tarek Lamptey started, he was just electrifying, and that was really exciting. I remember the preseason friendly, I think it was against Chelsea, where we first saw him, and it was like, wow. Uh, Sarmiento, again, he came on, I think it was an FA Cup game against Swansea, and it's just so exciting. But yeah, obviously, there's the Matomas and the Inciso, it's just with the recruitment, it just doesn't stop delivering like wow players. Um, and we saw it yesterday with with Simon and Ding, Dingra's goal. So I, th- I think, you know, I think probably Glenn Murray is probably my the most consistent sort of hero, if you like, since I started supporting the Albion. And he's a, he's a really nice guy as well. I think that that's important too. Yeah, sure. definitely, yeah. definitely. And um, there's some fantastic players that you've, you know, that you've mentioned there, some really exciting young uh, talent as well and uh, finally mark i mean me and joe and i uh, to a lesser extent perhaps sony we we love a good football shirt love a good football shirt um are there any shirts that you've appreciated from the brighton or maybe even an arsenal shirt i mean you know we talk about arsenal <laughs> classic arsenal shirts you got the uh, the banana shirt from what 1993 yeah, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, yeah I, know exactly what sh- I know exactly which one you mean um i think the skin the brighton skin shirts it was before it was sort of just before my era if you like of supporting them and i just moved to brighton so i was clubbing a lot and um, Joe would have maybe seen my stupid email address, which is Mark the Funky Vet, and I was DJing at the time and running club nights. So I think Skint was was obviously part of that era. Um, but to be honest with you, I love I like this season's shirt, I, the home shirt. I think it, really blocky, really simple, really sort of traditional and classic. I, I'm not a fan of the away shirt at all, uh, the green and black one. Um, I like the crimson and I like the hyperturk. Um, I quite like the Europa League one with the pavilion. That's quite that's quite um, cheeky. Um, but yeah, I like the new one. I just like I just like simple, simple blocky blue and white. Can't argue with that, Mark. Can't <laughs> argue with that. Now, Mark, before we um, we sort of <laughs> we're going to probably like you know push away the Sheffield United game for as long as we can. Um, let's talk about you a little bit more because we want to get to know you a little bit more. Uh, you're an OBE, um, which is obviously a, a huge deal and you know a massive thing for yourself because you've obviously worked very hard to get to that. So tell us a little bit more about your journey from you know Mark the Funky Vet to Mark. There it is, and there we have it. The OBE. How did how did it all there happen? It Mark? Um, first of all, I still I'm in a bit of disbelief that I've even got one, like proper imposter syndrome. Um, but I got it because I, uh, so I'm a vet, obviously, um, and I'm a campaigning vet. So in 2009, I saw puppies coming into my emergency clinic dying of a disease called parvovirus, which is a horrible disease that kills puppies. Uh, and it's usually puppies uh, that have been bred in a horrible environment. And these puppies were bought from a third-party seller just outside New Haven near Rodmel. And they were being bought in from puppy farms in Wales. And puppy farms are sort of big agricultural sheds, usually in rural areas, that mass-produce puppies and prioritise uh, profit over welfare. And this whole whole chain of puppy from Welsh puppy farm to third-party seller and rod mail to consumer uh, to customer was completely legal. Um, but it, it, it meant that the breeders weren't accountable. 
And um, this was a real issue for me because the government at the time was saying, oh, we see the puppy interacting with his or her mum in the place that they were born. But the same government was giving out licenses to sell puppies with, to, to third party sellers uh, without, without the mum there. So there was a bit of hypocrisy from the top that obviously has never changed with various things. Uh, let's not get too political. Um, but I just thought this um, pu puppies always need to be seen with their mum when they're born. And so over a 10 year period, uh, we actually changed the law. It's called Lucy's Law to ban third party sellers of puppies and kittens. So now when you buy a puppy, you have to see the puppy interacting with his, his or her mum in the place they were born. So it means every breeder is accountable. Every breeder is the seller. And it's the first step in eradicating puppy farming because you're, you're, you're making everything more transparent so that people can see the mums, see the breeding conditions and, and meet the breeders. So it was a 10-year campaign that involved uh, first, four, first four years of sort of awareness day dog shows and celebrities getting involved. And then it went political. Caroline Lucas, who's obviously a Brighton MP, invited me to Westminster. He petitions, debates all sorts of parliamentary tools that are accessible to everyone. Um, and it was a lot of trial and error. I had no idea what I was doing for, for the majority of it, but 300 visits later to Westminster, um, we actually changed the law. And it was a, co a little coalition of us grassroots campaigners, all of us not really understanding what we were doing. I mentioned imposter syndrome with the OBE, but it was proper imposter syndrome in Parliament, if you've ever been. You know, it's 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 quite an intimidating place to to make any progress whatsoever, especially when you don't know what you're doing or have no background in it. Um, but yeah, we got there in the end. We banned third party sellers in England. Then we did it in Wales. Then we did it in Scotland, and then Northern Ireland. When they get their uh, parliament in order, it'll be there too. So it's yeah, it's so now I'm a campaigner and and I'm I'm a vet in Rottingdean. I'm still a vet in Rottingdean. Um, but I'm at the Muse Vets, but I also run the all-party parliamentary group for dog welfare. Um, I've just finished a documentary on dog welfare, um, which was shot here and in the States. So I've, I, my life has changed, although I'm still vetting. I'm doing a lot more campaigning, raising awareness, applying my campaigning skills and tools to other campaigns, even human campaigns. So the loneliness charity in Brighton called Together Co. Um, the the funny picture i sent you joe about you know with me in the in the uh, bird sanctuary with gully and sally brighton mascots so yeah life is life is very different to how i ever imagined it would be and to get an obe that was only last year i got it on the queen's penultimate birthday on his list so I put this, my certificate assigned by the queen and i got it from prince charles so i've got a really good combo which is the picture of getting it for, with charles is obviously now the king, and being on the Queen's list and having a certificate by the the Queen, signed by the Queen. So it's been an interesting, interesting time. Sorry, I went on a bit, but yeah, that's sort of in a nutshell. That's, that is um, so cool. That is like super cool. Yeah, yeah it's um, yeah, it's a really worthwhile uh, cause, Mark. As a you know, I'm sure you know many Britons around the country would consider themselves dog lovers, um, but sometimes, and I know this from you know my wider family experience they don't always do their due diligence when they yeah. uh, buy a puppy um myself i've got two rescue dogs um but no it's um it's a really worthwhile cause and your new book seems to be well it's new book be more mosquito how you can campaign and create change um and from you know sort of like the 
what I've looked at online, it seems to be a bit of like a a guide on how you can, yeah. you know, individuals can campaign for what they believe in. And it was almost like, you know, taking away this idea that you're only one person, what does your voice matter? And actually empowers people to get out there and, you know, make change. So tell us how the book came about, Mark, and, you know, what the book is about. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, I mean, you kind of nailed it, really. It's when you start off campaigning for something, first of all, you've got to, you've got to care enough about something to do something about it. There's obviously a lot of apathy around, can't be bothered, what's the point? As you say, what does my voice, what, does that make a difference? But there are ways of, of uh, using your voice uh, to, to achieve change. So while I st when I started campaigning, the only touch point I ever really had with Westminster and politics was watching Spitting Image as a kid, genuinely. I was a science nerd. I was biology, chemistry, physics. Uh, politics was just something that posh people in suits did in London somewhere, you know. Um, so then I saw the whole puppy thing happened, and I thought, I need to change this. But again, I had no idea about politics or campaigning. My dad was in advertising. So I'd grown up with fonts and branding and sort of, I guess, concepts of, of, of campaigns. Um, but in terms of political, absolutely zero. So my first few years were, I had a bit of a media profile. I was the vet on This Morning and Paul O'Grady show uh, and occasionally BBC Breakfast, Alan Titchmarsh. So I had a little bit of a media profile. And then I, I came up with, so I was being invited to these dog shows around the country, charity dog shows, to judge prettiest bitch and waggiest tail and all that stuff. And I noticed that the British come out, whatever whatever the weather, for their rosettes. So I I knew the, the strength and power of dog shows. So I did one at the race course to raise awareness about puppy farming, rescue dogs and responsible breeding. Then I moved it to Stanmer House in the garden two years it was called pup aid and then i moved it to london to primrose hill which is obviously a posh part of london and ricky gervais came sarah harding liam gallagher and it was insane so we, we did and it grew and grew and grew we did seven years in london three years down in brighton um so that was one way of campaigning like raising awareness changing behavior and then caroline lucas invited me to westminster and we had a chat and i was on this the lowest of the low political rungs of the ladder and just, as I said before, trial and error, uh, petitions, debates, select committees, meeting MPs. And as I was going along this mental journey, really, um, I just thought I have to put this down on paper one day. To, because when you're grassroots campaigning, you have minimum resources, zero, really. You have creativity, imagination, no money for it. You're not like a, you know, a political lobbyist who has all these hundreds of thousands of pounds to influence people. It's really creativity and imagination that drives it and, and not giving up. And, um, and I just thought I have to put this down on paper one day so if anyone is, cares enough about something to want to change stuff, instead of just going, what's the point, they can pick it up and there's something in there for everyone, whether it's retweeting a, a tweet with a petition link in it to actually leading a full-blown campaign that actually changes the law. So there's something on that spectrum for everyone um, to do, um, forming a coalition, use of social media, traditional media. There's so many tools that are out there that are free and accessible to all of us. So you could flip it and say there's really no excuse for not doing anything that you care strongly about. And we live in a world where... We have this social, social media never existed like it does today, 10, 15 years ago. 
to to be able to connect with influencers and decision makers, politicians, campaigners. Um, so you can get a coalition together quite quickly. You can tag in people that you're trying to um, um, sort of pop up on their radar. And you can go in and meet MPs either in your where you live or in Westminster. So there's just ways of doing stuff. And I thought I'd simplify it so everyone... So no one sort of wasted their time and resources. They can just crack on with it and do it in the most efficient way possible. Yeah, I've I've seen a lot of um, petitions on on Twitter and, and things like that that are related to really important causes, and they don't get nearly enough traction as you might imagine that they they should. Um, and what what do you think is is the the, the key to getting the, the word out to, to the right amount of people and to so people don't just scroll past we live in a world of social media that's so instant you can just scroll yeah how, how do you how do you really get your, your message out if, if people do want to campaign about something they they feel strongly for i think they need to twitter's the sort of place for proper campaigning i feel i mean it has changed a lot in the last year or so for the for the worse um, if you haven't got a tick, you, you just have so much less interaction than if you do. And I refused to get a tick. I wasn't going to pay for something that I was doing because I was I was one of these people who had a tick. But I was I was making Twitter better by bringing information to the masses and and sort of sharing petitions and stuff. And you almost felt like you got penalised for for why Twitter was a useful t- platform if you know what I mean. Now you have to pay. It's like, I'm not paying. Um, so I, my, sadly, it's you get a lot, a lot less interaction. But, but to your point, find people that are campaigning about the same thing, and that's really easy with just like looking at hashtags and stuff or just putting keywords in. The type of petition is really important. There's a lot of change.orgs, um, which are very popular, and you can set it up in a few seconds, but they don't really result in a debate or any form of uh, a tool to make progress in Westminster. So it depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to raise awareness, change public behaviour, change laws, it depends on what petition you need to choose. And I've written this all up in the book. The obvious ones that we see quite a lot are the 100,000 e-petition parliamentary ones. So that pretty much guarantees a debate if you get 100,000 signatures. And they're the green and black and white ones. Um, they take a few weeks sometimes to go live. So that's different to the change.orgs that are instant. But at the end of so 10,000 signatures, you get a response from the government. 100,000, you get a debate in Westminster. And, and people, and, I, and myself included, I was so naive at the beginning. I thought if you get 100,000 and it gets debate, surely that's it. You've changed the law. But that's really depressingly, it's actually the beginning of the journey because it's just a conversation with MPs, you get a response from the minister who represents the government, obviously, and then you build on basically the opposition arguments to what you're campaigning for. Um, other advice would be to always have a solution if you're going to campaign. There's no point going, this is bad. And then people go, well, what are you going to do? I don't know. Um, so you need a solution that's practical and workable and um, legitimate. Um, so yeah, there's, there's just so many, um, pieces of the puzzle when you're campaigning, but I guess my point is it's all doable. I came from a position of not knowing anything about politics and ended up changing a few laws and now running an all party parliamentary group in Westminster. I still get imposter syndrome. I've been there probably 350, 400 times now. I have meetings in number 10 
with regard to rescue dogs, Tom, I, I was I was responsible for getting Boris and his wife's uh, Carrie's rescue dog, Dylan. Um, and again, that was a huge career highlight because you're getting a rescue dog into one of the most famous addresses in the world. So all of these things are possible. You just have to be prepared for the long game. I th- I would say one of the biggest pieces of advice is tone. You need to get your tone right. There's so much aggression out there. And, and as soon as someone's aggressive, you just switch off. And you can't be aggressive to MPs because they'll switch off. So you've just got to be really polite and respectful, even if things aren't going away. And be prepared, as I said, to, to play the long game. And as I write also in the in the book, you're working towards an ambush. And by ambush, I mean you're, the end of your campaign is basically surrounding the chief decision maker with all the tools, petitions, celebrities, uh, debates, select committee. You want every, the public obviously, you want everyone around that chief decision maker to be singing the same thing. And then they just go, got to do it and that's kind of what we did with lucy's law we tried every tool in the book until the chief decision maker who at the time was michael gove he was secretary of state for the environment um went okay and and it's um, and sometimes they still won't and sometimes they'll drop a bill like recently with the kept animals bill but you've just got to keep going and you've just got to be evidence-based provide a solution uh and take lots of deep breaths when things don't go your way and over 10 years for lucy's law things didn't go away a lot um, so yeah, you just gotta be patient. It's like a big game of chess, really, is the best way to describe it. You'll be really, really patient, but you, you can get it, you, you can do anything you want, you just have to do it in the right way. And that's absolutely <laughs> wonderful, Mark. And I think you know, a massive well done to you and everyone who you campaigned alongside. Well, thank that. you. No, because I mean, like, uh, as an animal lover, you know, the amount of animal lives that will be made better because of that, yes, um, you know, 100%. and I think. That's important, very important. And 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 I led the campaign, but really little Lucy, who was a dog that rescued from the puppy farm, she had all these problems. She had separation anxiety, she had arthritis, she had dry eye. Um, she was a tiny little cavalier King Charles Spaniel. Um, she kind of really led the campaign and we all, us humans, sort of filed him behind her from our grassroots campaigning coalition to hundreds of thousands of people who who signed petitions and came to a few rallies and contacted their MP. So it was a, it was a massive team effort, uh, which I'm incredibly proud of. And it still feels like someone else did it, if you know what I mean. Um, we were in this weird bubble of campaigning, but almost like you could the rest of the world was behind like a perspex screen. Uh, and we were so locked in, and you just watched everyone else getting on with their lives. But we, us, there were certainly six of us campaigning in our spare time, um, all all around the country. So everything was by email. I I represent the co our coalition in Westminster, but I couldn't have done it without Julia and Folkestone pr- pr- um, providing reports, and Linda in Wales helping me with the sort of the marketing and the creative side. So we all just sort of it's funny we never overlapped our skill set but we just carried on over 10 years and eventually crossed the line and and changed the law so that's be more mosquito how you can campaign and create change we will and and i'll just i'll just jump in there to just the title of the book because people go why is it called be more mosquito there's a dalai lama quote which is if you think you're too small to make a difference try sleeping with a mosquito 
So I just thought it'd be, be fun to say "Be More Mosquito." So that that's the that's the reason for the title. The end. <laughs> at, at first, when I saw the title of the book, I thought you were telling people to be a mosquito, and I was like, "Absolutely not! I hate mosquitoes." So I'm gonna I'm yeah. gonna bore you with a, a teacher thing. They tell us when like, when we when you first become a teacher, they often say that they tell you this story about this man who's walking along a beach. And he comes across a boy throwing starfish back into the sea. These starfish are on the beach. And he's throwing starfish after starfish after starfish. And there's like hundreds of them. And the man's watching for a few minutes. And he says to the boy, what are you doing? You, you, there's hundreds here. You're not going to make any difference. The boy throws a starfish back into the sea, turns around and says, made a difference to that one. So, you know, it's a, a huge, huge impact. And I'm always a, a huge advocate for individual uh, you know, change and how that actually can be really impactful. So, you know, never think you're too small to change the world. Talking of changing the world, let's uh, let's change our view, let's change our focus, and let's look at the football over the weekend. We've been really positive with everything that Mark's told us about how he's been out there changing the world. So let's look at... Um, let's start off, Joe, by looking at our injury list, because... That's fun. Dunk, <laughs> Inciso, Pervis Dupignan, Evan Ferguson, Tarek Lamptey, oh. Sonny March, James Milner, oh. Dan Welbeck. That, that's that's <laughs> a pretty pretty long list of injured players, Joe. Um, were you uh, were you expecting to see a few more under twenty threes, given the uh, the sheer amount of players we've got injured? I mean, really, it's it's incredible that we can field. A competitive team at all yeah um luckily obviously you know with the the build-up to europe last season we we've added a, a couple more players here and there that we may not have added if had we have not got into europe so i guess you can spin that get that as a positive spin um i think had we not have seen Jakob moda back on the bench there would have definitely been another under 23 on there as well that we could have maybe seen an appearance of um it's just a bit of a disaster, isn't it, Tom? Um, like, what what <laughs> are we to do when, you know, Purvis comes back on at Ajax after 15-odd minutes? It looked like he mouthed it, it's gone. So I'm I'm terrified that something else has gone out of his knee or something like that. Um, you know, Solly was still none the wiser as to how long he's going to be out. Um Danny Welbeck, you know, I've forgotten pretty much that Danny Welbeck existed. You know, it's 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 a really difficult situation. Um, it's it's surprising that we've managed to beat Ajax twice in the space of two weeks and, you know, still be competitive on that front because we really could have taken a nosedive with, with how our, our squad is at the moment. And you could say our league form has taken a nosedive. I think it's no win except for Ajax, no win in 10 games, I believe. So, yeah, it's last, it's, last it's looking win, bleak. Yeah. Last win in the league was against Bournemouth. Yeah, it, it, it looks bleak, Tom. And, you know, hopefully we have an upturn in, in fortunes with our injury list after this international break. I've never wanted an international break so badly. I know, tell me about it. Normally international breaks are sort of like you don't want them to turn around, especially in the last, you know, 18 months or so. We've been so, you know, fortunate with our league form. We haven't wanted the, the league form to, to stop. Um, but yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, Sony, we saw Mahoney 
uh, O'Mahony, I should say, um, named along at the bench alongside returning Jakob Moda. So there were spaces for the under 23s. Uh, six changes for the team that beat Ajax in Amsterdam, which was just mind boggling. Um, you know, Duncan Milner obviously out injured. Um, you know, Verbruggen out, Veltman out, João Pedro out, Matoma on the bench, income Jason Steele, Igor Webster, Gilmore, Lalana, and Buonanotte. Um, and the first Premier League start for Fatty. So we're still seeing a lot of rotation. Uh, what did you make of the starting eleven? Because, you know, it, it, I suppose it was, you know, make do as much as anything else. Yeah, I, I think I've mentioned this all week, and I think I mentioned it even more the week before. At this point, we're just throwing people into the volcano. It's it's that time, um, mostly because we have so many injured out and everyone is just like, oh, no, what are we going to do with this and that and the other thing? Um, we have the people. We just we really need them to obviously not one to step it up, but two, they need the experience. Like we have to have these losses in order for them to gain experience. Um, and I, I feel like our fan base lately has a little been uh, reactionary. Um you know, definitely you know, once they see one player out there, like we have to get this other player. It's like, bro, we have other people on this team, you know, like that's okay. Um, I, for some reason, thought that uh, Verbruggen was going to be playing this weekend, especially after his performance. But I also get at the same time, it's like you have to give a break. So, you know, everybody that we put in first, um, we're definitely like just, you know, I wouldn't say placeholders, but definitely a little bit of a reprieve for our usual starting lineup, considering all the changes. So I, again, a lot of people, when they criticized RDZ's um, lineup, the last time that happened was Wolves. And you know what happened at Wolves or at home when we had the Wolves. We already know how that goes. Um, But I mean, I was pretty confident in the lineup. I didn't think anything out of the ordinary. I said, okay, this is who we have. Volcano time. Time to throw them in. I absolutely love that analogy. What an analogy. Um, Mark, I mean, you you said, you know, in the introduction we just spoke about, you know, you've been following Brighton now since about 2015. Um, so in those intervening years, you must have seen, you know, the, the, the way Brighton do things. You beat Ajax away at the Johan Cruyff Arena, one of the most iconic stadiums in Europe against one of the biggest teams in Europe, albeit they're not, you know, as amazing as they used to be uh, at the moment. And then at home against the t- team at the bottom of the table, worst goal difference. Uh, and um, were you confident that Brighton could get a result or had you have you sort of seen enough to go, yeah, Brighton, they're going to do a Brighton? Um, we do have a habit of sort of giving points to the, the lower teams. I mean, we know that. I do think it's also worth noting, though, that the officials for the Fulham game and yesterday's game were, to put it politely, questionable. I, I, I think we've seen a bias. I think there's a lack of consistency. Um, and I just felt, yes, again, yesterday, it's like, really? You know, yes, we've got a lot of injuries, but it doesn't really help when the officials are not aren't on our side, but aren't just being fair. And, you know, we should have had a penalty yesterday. What was What was the difference of that? Um, elbow hitting the ball that, to Dunkey's one at the beginning of the season that was a penalty. Do you know what I mean? It was exactly the same. And I think it's the lack of consistency that absolutely boils all of our blood because 
we're, we're going there. We have got massively high expectations now for this side because they've been just unbelievable. So when it's kind of ruined by officials, I just think it's it's infuriating. And that's I think you know the, the atmosphere does change at the Amex quite quickly, and and for good reason. Um, you know we're all trying, and the players are trying. We have got a depleted side, and just it's almost like it's ruined by that. Um, obviously, the red card was a red card, and we didn't really help ourselves in that respect. And but I just think you come away the levels of frustration. I don't you don't mind it if they've lost and they've played well, but when they've lost, and I think the officials have been part of that. Um, I, ju- I just, it just leaves a bad taste in everyone's mouth. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does, uh, Mark. And we've we've said as much over the last few weeks. There's been some very uh, dis- questionable decisions, and um, you know there was a few in that game that we'll talk about in a bit more detail in just a bit. Um, Joe, let's let's start talking about the first half then, because within the first half an hour, Brighton looked absolutely excellent going forward. They just lacked the clinical touch. Um, to extend the lead. But let's talk about the goal, Joe, because it was a thing of absolute beauty. Uh, Simon Adingra goes on a, a weaving run. There's a lovely little one-two in the box with Vakunda Buonanate, and then Adingra slots home off the post. It, it was a sensational goal from a player who's really in form at the moment. It was probably one of the most electrifying goals I've seen at the Amex. Just the way that the burst of pace from Simon Adingra. Just to, you, I don't think we've we've seen these types of wingers at the Albion up until now. Up until we've had the likes of Matoma and Ciso. Um, you could argue he's a number ten. Um, and Simon Adingra, who just literally pick up the ball and run at the defenders, and that puts them on the back foot instantaneously. Um, and then you know. They're, they're having to make these split-minute dis- decisions that, one, if they cock it up, you're going to give away a penalty. Um, and and two, you know, you've got this incredibly quick player running at you who can, you know, as you said, Tom, is in incredible form um, and will bury it. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't just explosive, but it was a really intelligent piece of play that he got the ball away from from himself to create more space. Buonanotte with a tiny little flick on, which just takes so many defenders out of the game. And he's got the opportunity to put it in the back of the net. And that's what you see from Simon Adingra also coming off the left as well. You know, he's played on the right for, I think all of his games so far for us. So to make that transition to the left and fill up, fill the boots of Matoma um, and, and do his role so well, absolutely perfect and you know i've said for for so long we're so lucky to be stacked in the position those positions um that we are because had we had the had the injury crisis that we've had at the back but at the front if you swip that around it's it's um it's a disaster so luckily we've we've got that um safety net of having these players come in um, and do really well, and it was it was an unbelievable goal. So so good to watch from the north stand, and yeah, um, scenes scenes in the north stand. Love it, love it. Probably the only positive thing we'll talk about today. <laughs> the thing is, what I think what is the most frustrating thing for me is um, because that goal was beautiful, and there mm. was so many opportunities to extend the lead. Fatty had a um, some great opportunities. Billy Gilmore had a you know, had a wonderful shot at the end of the first half. 
Um, Jao Pedro had a, a really good chance in the second. What frustrated me the most, Sony, is that Brighton almost took their foot off the gas. And that's not the first time we've said that this season. They scored and then almost everyone just sort of becomes too casual with the ball. And you're almost just waiting for the moment where we give it away. So, Sony, were you frustrated with the lack of Brighton's you know, intensity? It just dropped, almost sort of ceased to exist, especially towards the end of the first half. Really poor from us. Oh, absolutely. I, we've seen it all throughout the year. It's the moment that we score, we just we just stop. It, you know, we should be scoring at all times. We should always be at 100. We shouldn't stop until the whistle is done, like at 90 minutes, right? I, I don't know what's going on in their heads, whether they go, okay, cool, we're doing a great job. We're going to keep pressing them to make sure that, like, they don't score, which is great and all, but you need to still score. And I don't know why they're so afraid of goals. Like, it, it's okay. You you throw, you hit the ball in the net. That's how you win games. I I don't know what else to say, really. It's it's strange, isn't it? Because when, I mean, even, even this season, we've scored so many. We actually have the best goal um, in open play. You know, we have the best numbers from goals from open play. And we were up against the team, Mark, with I think they've got the worst goals against in the league. You would have put money on Brighton scoring an absolute hatful. Mm. Um, but it just it just wasn't to be. I mean, you talked about the frustration. I mean, was that the overwhelming feeling for you as sort of like as you watched Brighton sort of kick the ball around quite nicely, get into an opportunity, and then not take the most of it? I think I think away teams know that as soon as we we score, we do our, our sort of as as you said, Sony, the the appetite and the hunger and the aggression just goes tippy tappy tippy tappy. The away the away players know exactly what's going on. They capitalise on that and they always equalise. I even said yesterday to our friends in front of us, Chris. I said, you know what's going to happen now, and he's like, don't say it, don't say it. I said they're going to equalise. And they equalised. And, and against the Fulham game, said the same. It's like, we don't kill the games off. And we've got such talent to do that. But it's almost like, as I said, the, the first goal goes in and they just, the aggression levels go down and the, the almost like the direction of the ball changes because it's forward, forward, forward. And then it starts going backwards or sideways and possession. And it's, it's you know, to have 80% possession or 60 or whatever it is, but lose, which was what happened really over in the Potter years. You know, we had so much possession. And I think Sheffield United had one shot on target yesterday. Um, it's it's ridiculous. And um, I do think we need to be more confident and, and braver and just shoot from far out. We kind of did that at the beginning of the season. We don't tend to do that so much anymore. It's almost like they, they've lost their bottle a little bit. Um, but, yeah, it's, it is frustrating. But it, I think the away teams kind of know that pattern now. So their tails go up as soon as, as the, that energy level goes down and they, and they capitalise on it. And, you know, fair play to them. But we, we do need to be braver and more confident. And as you say, we need to just sort of keep fighting rather than go, we've done, we've done enough now, let's take a little bit of a break and pat ourselves on the back. 
Yeah, I mean, it's all, I mean, it's not, obviously, it wasn't all well and good playing that way against Fulham and Sheffield United, but you can't do that against, you know, we're, I know next, but Nottingham Forest, who are in great form. They've got Chelsea, who have just, you know, come off the back of a, a fantastic result for them. Um, it's the, yeah, it's it's a really strange thing, the pattern that started to emerge over the last month or so. One that didn't really exist before, at least not in consecutive games. I remember last season there was a game against Aston Villa at home. I think we scored in like the second minute, and it just it had the same sort of vibes as that. Yeah. As you say, all the intensity went down, everything just sort of. And I was under the impression as well that the, their goalkeeper, where's Fodderingham? I'm pretty sure he he's been carrying a slight injury, a slight knock. And he was a bit sort of hesitant to go down to his side. So it was one of those where you just thought, just put the ball either side of him and you're probably going to, you know, score. Um, it was just really, really frustrating. And, um, you know, Fatty, who's been absolutely excellent at times with his finishing, I was really disappointed with his lack of finishing. I mean, and Joe, it was clear that Roberto De Zerbi probably felt similar to us in that his halftime changes involved bringing on Jao Pedro, and uh, Karim Mutoma for Lalana and Buenanote. Um, so again, I think there must have been that desire from at least De Zerbi, you know, we need to go and do more. Um, you would have almost put your house on the fact that, you know, as I said, against the team with the worst goals against, you've just brought on Matoma and Jao Pedro, we're going to cook. Uh, it just didn't happen though, did it? No, you've got to question the mentality of the players at this stage because... You know, I, I've I've spoken so much about how De Zerbi is the mentality king, and I, I I still believe that he he has got that in him to to get the very best out of players. But something seems to be a little bit off at the moment. Um, and in De Zerbi's press conference before the game, he said, "This game is like a final. If we win this game, we can go to a new level. Not in the table, but in terms of our mentality." I, I I worry about the fact that we haven't won that game, what it's going to do to the mentality of the players. If Deserby's putting that much pressure on that result to go out there before an international break as well. It, again, this is why I'm so happy the international break is now. These players get some time away, regroup, come back. We've got some really difficult games, if you, you pointed out, Tom. We have to hit the ground running as soon as we come back. Because if we don't do that, yes, we've still got Europe to look forward to and we can take somewhat different form into Europe, somewhat different mentality into Europe. But it's so important what Deserby's pointing out, this mentality between coming off the back of a European game back into the league. As soon as we've played Athens, we go and play Chelsea. It's it's an incredibly tough period and an incredibly telling period is what it's going to be after the international break. Where will Brighton finish at the end of the season? We'll find out in the lead up to Christmas, I think. I think you're you're probably right, um, and I think I think you know, Mark, you you touched on it. Expectations have changed, haven't they? Um, and I think obviously that is in part down to the fact that um, we finished top six last season. Fans are expecting more. Um, and Sony, just before I come to Mark on that point again, do you think those expectations need to be tempered a bit? I mean, we've seen. I mean. Over the last couple of seasons, we've seen teams qualify for Europe um, and then their league form suffers. It happened to West Ham last season. It's happened to Wolves. It's happened to Burnley. Um, it happened to Leicester, I believe, when they were in the Champions League. Um, so it's a really delicate balance. But we're still in, what, I think we're seventh? Are we seventh now? 
So it's still, you know, they're all thereabouts, but not as good as last season, where I think this time last season we were fifth. Um, but do you think the expectations need to be adjusted somewhat considering, um, you know, the additional Euro- Europa League games? I'm like 50-50 on that. I feel like we need to temper our expectations a little bit because while everyone thinks, well, at first before we got into Europa and all that stuff, they were just like, Brighton's going to take the league. Brighton's going to do this, that, and the other thing. And we were all like, yeah, we're going to do it. And then as you see, we're over here balancing so many games. The guys are literally just exhausted and tired and whatnot. It's like, yes, I want to maintain that pressure on them to do as well as they can. But at the same time, it's like you can already see the guys like tired and falling apart and injured. And it's like, okay, maybe I should knock down the expectation a little bit. Um, I I don't know. It's a tough call to make. Um, I want the players to do well. And like Joe said, it's a mentality thing. It's all about mentality. Um, RDZ literally said it before. You know, this is a really big game for us. If we can push through this, then we can basically push through anything. And as you saw, it's like once we did try and push, we stopped pushing. So I maybe this break is well-placed and maybe the break isn't well-placed. Maybe it just doesn't help us at all. but we we definitely uh, we definitely need to get it together for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. Um, I think Mark one man's uh, expectations that certainly won't be tempered are uh, Roberto De Zerbi. Um, he, uh, as you know, the pre-match he was very uh, you know very very much bigging the game up, which many fans sort of were a bit confused by. Um, do you think he'll be disappointed with the lack? of uh i don't know but belief perhaps could be could be the word you use because i think the 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 players just lacked belief out there that's exactly the word that was in my mind just now when we were just chatting it's the belief they start the game believing they can win then they start winning and then they kind of lose that belief and i think that's that's the essence of of what's going on but i mean on the flip side the premier league i don't think there's ever been as unpredictable. Every week we see scores that you just think, what? Um, and and I think we, we do need to give ourselves a bit of a break sometimes. The expectations are ridiculously high, and that's a great thing because we've been playing so well. But other teams are struggling for all sorts of reasons. You know, Newcastle, obviously, they lost. They, they, they've got their fair share of injuries. They're in the Champions League. So I think we can maybe even group ourselves in these sort of these top teams. Clearly, we're in the Europa um, so we and we deserve to be, and and maybe that's just one of the you know the um, the downsides of of having all these extra games and 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 just trying to be the best and trying to to win every single game. I think it, it must take its toll physically and emotionally, and maybe we're seeing that that toll emotionally. But they they always start so well. Uh, in, in, the, in, the, in these games where we, where we score early, but then it just it just sort of peters off, and I think everyone who's watching is so used to that now. It's there's there's lots of different reasons for frustration, but that's definitely up there. It's just we've we've seen this pattern. I don't really know how our, our DZ gets that back 
I mean, he will try, obviously, and I'm sure the players will too, but I don't think there's a quick fix. I think he, he almost like needs to take them to Dubai or something and, and just have some warm weather training and then bring them back, get the morale up, get that sort of team spirit up um, and, and hopefully get a few more injured players uh, back on the bench and back on the pitch. Yeah, I think you're, you're probably spot on there, Mark. Um, we, we've got to talk about the, um, the unravelling shall we say. And I think it all starts, Joe, with um, the moment that I know Mark's already spoken about, uh, but you were very uh, frustrated by as well in, in our Albion Obsessed group chat, chat, and that was the VIR check for handball. Um, so it was a Dahoud cross, I believe, um, hit uh, the hand of Bogle. Um, it was a very quick VAR check. Um, it, very similar to the penalty we saw given against Lewis Dunk um, when we played the season opener at Luton. And we all know that that was given uh, as a penalty. And we were all very, very angry about that, very frustrated by it. Um, For me, it's not a penalty. However, it's the consistency. It has been given as a penalty already this season. So surely, if you want to, you know, the integrity of VAR and the officials to to be high, not that it is at this moment in time. It's got to be a penalty, Joe. Um, we, me and you had a discussion after the Everton game about the butterfly effect of football and if moments are, are given, will we have the opportunity to see what happens and how that game, how the game pans out if the decisions are made correctly? If Dunkey's goal was given against Everton, what would have happened after that? If that penalty is given, we more than likely score it. I don't think Jal Pedro's missed this season yet from the spot. We will we'll score the penalty. We're 2-0 up. Um, and hopefully the floodgates open a little bit more. I know that's if, buts and maybes. But that opportunity to see what happens after that is taken away from us by the officials. Because as you say... If you if you're looking at the donkey penalty, if you're looking at multiple world penalties over the season, it's a penalty every single day of the week. You put them side by side, both of those decisions. Put I I put them side by side. I watch them side by side. They they are identical, as you've already pointed out, Mark. I believe earlier on in the podcast or before we start recording, they are quite literally identical. And that's what really really annoys me about VAR is this consistency that they bang on about when some decisions don't go for people and they'll say, well, you want the consistency, so deal with it. So it works both ways, but we're not allowed to get annoyed about it because then you're disrespecting referees. And then Deserby's making comments and more than likely we'll get a ban because of the comments he made. I've got no doubts. And we're in this awkward position where all of these awful decisions are happening every single weekend and we're not allowed to say anything about it obviously whatever we say you know in the grand scheme of things doesn't really matter we're just on a podcast talking about it they're never going to listen to us but when managers come out passionately get ridiculed for talking about decisions that have really affected their team and at the end of the season could really affect the outcome of where this team finishes as Mikel Arteta has said there is so much more at stake here than just making a decision to back your friends up or whatever, whatever's happened over VAR. I'm not talking about this sole decision. I'm talking about the whole shambles that VAR is. 
we're sitting here not allowed to say anything because then you're going against the integrity of the game. They are going against the integrity of their own game that they're trying to officiate, and it's a disgrace. Um, but, you know, nothing I say is is new, and that's what really annoys me. We sit here week in, week out, talking about VAR, talking about referees, and, you know, it's coming to fruition now that managers are starting to talk about it. Great. We really need that. But they're going to get banned. They're going to get ridiculed by the media because it's not for their team. You said it, Tom, in the group chat. The anger needs to happen every single time, whether it's your team or not. The anger needs to happen. And that's the only way that change happens. Yeah, I think it's it's been very telling that I think on every, the last four podcasts, five maybe, we've had to devote time discussing VAR and discussing officials and their decisions. Um, of course, we have inherent bias because we are Brighton, but I think even anyone who can, you know, is a football fan could look at the two, you know, uh, decisions we're pointing out, Dunk against Luton and yesterday, and say, well, how is it one is and one isn't? I think that's the crux of it for me. Um, and I think it came down to his arm was in a natural position. Is that a natural position? <laughs> when the ball's coming yeah. in? No. Audio listeners, go to YouTube, go to around 53 minutes and tell me if this is a natural position. Whereas Dunk, of course, sliding mm. his arms down, you know, to support his his body as he slides. There is no doubt, though, Sony, that De Hood's red was a red card. I think initially on the first watch that I saw the first angle, I was like, nah, that's not a red card. What are they on about? And it was when you saw the reverse uh, of it, you um, you, you see the, the studs up. Um, bit of a silly boy. Silly, silly boy. Um, <laughs> frustrating because up until that point, yes, Brighton had been uh, wasteful in front of goal, but it had been relatively comfortable for the team. And it's fair to say that that red card completely changed the game. 100%. That card basically derailed everything that we were working on um i'm sure rdz was also caught off by surprise by that because that's like i think the first time he has to experience that you know where now he's down a man oh no now what do we do um i I at first like everyone else didn't think it was a red card just because i had seen it live and i was seeing the replays and i'm like Nah, that's not a red card. There's no way. But then someone on Twitter ended up finding the reverse video. And so you watched it over and over again. And you're like, oh, I see why. Like, definitely a red card. Was it intentional? No, I don't think so. Uh, It definitely was a mistake. And he apologized for it this morning on Twitter uh, with a nice post about the situation was like, hey, you know, like I tried. I was going for it. I messed up. Sorry. Let's just move on. And most people appreciate it. I did because not many people would own up to that. Um, but yeah, that 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 definitely changed the course of the game. Um, you know, and he was just about to get subbed, which was the worst part. Like he was very close to just being taken out and rotated. And yeah, losing one person, not fun. You you did actually mention something, Sony, that I think is really important. It's our first red card under Deserbi. We haven't had a red card in a long time, except for maybe Deserbi himself. Does, has he been sent off? 
Um, I know he's been banned from games. Yeah. I don't know if he has been sent off, but no, I think that's the first red card we've had. Well, it is the first red card we've had in a long time since maybe Sanchez against Newcastle. Yeah, we, we had the conversation in the car on the way home and I was like, what is the last red card at the Amex? And yeah, we whittled it down to Sanchez because I remember Dunk going in goal, which was hilarious. It was, it was absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Kept a clean sheet. Um, so yeah, it, 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 there's undoubtedly it's changed the game. Albion down to ten men, and it wasn't long after that red card mark that the uh, the goal came. Uh, Simon Adingra, who was absolutely excellent in attack, got caught in possession. And there's a stat that I've banded around a lot this season about how Brighton lose the ball and concede within a minute or so. And I think they're the team that have got the worst turnover to to goal sort of a ratio, as it were. Um, what what frustrates me the most, Mark, is that it's a very avoidable goal across from Bogle, deflected into the net by Webster, who's the wrong side of his man. It, it's just it's just really, a really frustrating. But as you say, Mark, you could just tell that it was coming you just know it's coming and and as you say it's i think it's a lack of focus in midfield they they do give the ball away um it's almost like they they pass so well and then and they get maybe a bit blasé with their passing and then one goes astray and and the other team are just waiting for it especially if there's a team that's part of the bus and are just waiting for a counter and they just seize it and off they go and we're all sort of standing there going Oh look, the other teams go attacking, you know. And ev- so I'm in the northwest corner, and we see this time and time again that that just energy of the away team just sort of disappearing off into the distance, and you just know what's going to happen. So it just I don't know it it, it is giving the the ball away a lot in in midfield that I think leads to so many of these goals that we concede. Sadly, and it's and I think that is a lack of focus. I think you're you're right, Mark. It's 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 just really frustrating. And I think over the last month, Fulham, Liverpool, and Sheffield three games we've led, and then we've uh, we've sort of capitulated, thrown away a lead. Um, and even against Everton, it was a very easy goal for for Everton. And I know that obviously in football, players you know do make mistakes. It's it's part and parcel yeah. of the game. Um, but it, Brian just seemed to be making a lot of them at the moment, and we seem to be being punished or you know very very quickly and very harshly for those mistakes um so yeah just a, an interesting interesting one really uh joe i mean brighton were well almost lucky not to go 2-1 down because moments later bogle dragged his shot wide and you know it's just um it's just more brighton doing brighton things joe i mean that thankfully i said thankfully it ended at full time one all um but what was your overarching feeling when that full-time whistle went? Uh, first of all, before it went, I was sat in the stands with my mum and I was like, you do know it's a maritime. Sheffield United will score and it will be 2-1. And everything that we worked towards in the first half, as Sony's pointed out, everything that we were pushing for, they stopped pushing. And then Sheffield United, obviously the red card happens. Sheffield United, their tails go up. I don't know where on earth that Sheffield United team was before the red card happened because they instantly found that they did have quality within them, um, which is, really confuses me about these teams that sit back and then something goes their way in a game, the momentum shifts and suddenly they're competent Premier League footballers again. It baffles me. Um, but yeah, it's just 
really delighted that the the full time whistle did come and that at least with the circumstance of the game we could take something out of it. I noticed at the start of the podcast we were talking about the game as if it was a loss and rightly so because it really did feel like a loss. But we have taken a point. If I'm trying to be optimistic here, it's something. It could have been worse. Um but as you've as you said many times over the last 24 hours, Tom, it could have been so much better. I think that's what frustrates me the most <laughs> is just knowing it could just it could have just been so much better, so much easier. Brighton seem to be the masters of their own downfall this season. Um, and it, it, I'll tell you for why, Tom, the, the, the amount of mistakes that are happening is because we don't have the hoover that was Moises Caicedo. All of these issues that were happening, he was just sweep them up, sweep them up, doesn't matter, turn and then turn a really unfortunate moment in the game into an attack and we go and score. Mm. The, the, think... the needs to replace Moises, I know we talk about our fullback situation, but the need to replace Moises with a midfielder that can do somewhat of what he does we we still don't have that type and that's why these mistakes are happening because pascal gross is getting pipped off the ball billy gilmore and then we're having to recover we haven't really got the players that can recover unbelievably well they do on occasion but we haven't got that moises type that's going to say okay let me just go and win that ball and then whatever happens after happens but yeah the closest we have is belabor and he's Mm. still young and raw yeah, um, still relatively inexperienced. I think you know he only played a handful of games when he was, uh, you know, for the fem- the team he was with in France for you know however long. So he hasn't played that many first team games, especially at the level of the Premier League. So it's 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 a tough one to take, and um, you know it's uh, you know it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because against Everton, you kind of thought you know maybe a point gained, considering we scored late and it was a deflective fluky goal. But this one definitely feels like two points dropped. Um, and you know whether that's expectations, whether that's I don't know. And you know, Mark, you pointed out, you know, Spurs lost to, to Wolves two one. Um, you know, Liverpool drew with Luton last weekend. So there's Man been United some... won. That was that was unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> there's been some pretty topsy turvy results um, across you know the last couple of weeks. So I, I get it, um, but it still doesn't make me feel better. It still makes me feel very cross. Feel very frustrated. Um, and Sony, so, you know, you've sort of, we've talked about how this might be actually the perfect time for the international break to come because it gives the team a chance to reset a little bit, um, maybe work on their game management. Because for me, that's probably the thing that's lacking at the moment, game management. For you, Sony, what does Roberto De Zerbi need to work on over the international break in terms of getting this team to be able to hold on to a lead? And for the love of God, keep a clean sheet in the league because now we've conceded in our f- and scored in our first opening 12 games. That's the first time a team has done that since 1966-67, which is ridiculous in the top flight. I, I, I hasten to add. Um, I, I don't know if, he needs to do anything more to get these like players more, you know, in tune with mentality. Um, Like I'm pretty sure he's doing the best that he can. And I'm pretty sure he's applying a pressure to them all, like mentality, mentality, mentality. But if the players aren't doing their bit, then you can't really do anything about it. You know, Um, 
it's it's up to the players at this point to you know get that mentality up and running maybe they're just tired maybe um i don't know maybe something's happening behind the scenes that we don't know about it could be a number of things um but yeah game management is definitely one of them because we definitely need it um but i i feel like we just need them to refocus and be like hey mentality is the thing do something with it you know like you should always be on like don't switch off always be on so maybe maybe that's what it'll come down to yeah perhaps so as i say game management for me that's the thing that needs improving perhaps above all else um one thing mark with the international break uh, the sad news that unfortunately not surprisingly uh, lewis dunk withdrawing from the england squad um you know picked up a knock um against ajax um unfortunate but perhaps not unexpected yeah i mean he hasn't stopped has he the whole season um and he's he's physical and uh, mental in terms of his responsibilities uh, as captain, um, I think the fact that it happened against Ajax and not against Malta or North North, Mace- North Macedonia, uh, imagine how we'd be reacting if if he got injured in an England game. Um, so yeah, I, I, he'll make a quick recovery. He's he's made of strong stuff. Um, it's just it's just another unfortunate thing that's happening to us this season that we could really do without. And I think as well as the focus and the belief, I, I just genuinely believe that. It's the aggression. When we play aggressively, we're absolutely brilliant. And as soon as that level of aggression goes, we just become this sort of neutral passing team that doesn't really have any uh, desire to sort of get up the pitch and and run at people. You know, with, with players that we've got now, obviously Matoma and Adingra, they just run, run, run. And, and other teams can't handle that. And that's what we're good at. So we almost need the reminding, or the players need reminding that that's what that's what wins games. It's actually running forward, not passing uh, sideways or backwards. And I think they start off with that, and then that sort of dissipates and sort of um, yeah, it just sort of fades. And 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 then the the doubt comes in, as as you say, Joe, that the tails go up of the opposition, and it's a complete different game. So you go from thinking in the first ten minutes that we're going to win four 0 or be at least 2-0 up at half-time, to the last 10 minutes going, I just hope we get a point out of this. And it's such an emotional roller coaster that just shouldn't be happening. And I think the more this happens, it's it's yeah, it just builds this frustration. But it's good to be frustrated and it's good to care because it means that we are Albion obsessed. If we went, oh, it doesn't matter, we'll be fine next week, then we wouldn't have these conversations. But I think that the... Um, the high expectations are definitely the reason why we're all frustrated, which again is because we've been playing so well. So I'm trying to be positive that there are pros in, in, in what's going on now. And, it, and, and every time we get a red card or something doesn't go away, we all kind of think, let's hope we can build on this and use it as experience, especially with the younger players and actually become stronger from this, which I genuinely believe we can. It just seems we're going through a really tough period with officials and and uh, questionable decisions, and I think bias. I think I think refs, especially the last two games at the Amex, um, Fulham and Sheffield United. I think there has been bias shown by the refs. Um, 
I'm still not yeah, over that, that that red card that should have been a red card for Fulham. I'm still not over it. I'm still angry. <laughs> that with the elbow in the face one. Yeah, you know, you could just casually elbow 100%. someone in the face. That's that's absolutely fine. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then he went on and scored. So, yeah, I think I think we're just going through a a, a tricky patch, but I I, I think it will get better. I think we'll learn from all these experiences and we'll come out a lot stronger. Injuries will dry up. We'll get our full strength back. And, um, yeah, we'll smash the second half of the season. That's what we like to hear, Mark. A nice, really positive way to <laughs> end our Sheffield uh, analysis there. Um, just before we sort of sign off for the night, uh, when we return from the international break, we face a rejuvenated Nottingham Forest side who are in a pretty decent spell of form at the moment. And so that's going to be a tough game. I mean, it's away from home. Um, and we all know what happened last season when we uh, we went up there. So, uh, Joe, just before we sign off then, my friend, could I get a score prediction for Nottingham Forest? Thank you for reminding me of the last time, Tom. Really appreciate that. Um, score prediction, let's go for a two-all draw. Okay. Sorry, Mark, your your inspirational speech didn't, didn't quite turn me into thinking we could win after the break. Hopefully second half of the season when, when Christmas is done. But leading up to that, I think it's going to be tough. So, yeah, two all. Fair. Sony, how about you? School prediction for Nottingham Forest. I'm going to do 1-0 and us, considering that uh, we don't take our foot off the pedal. But if we do... We already know how that's going to end, so I'll just be quiet. I will take our first clean sheet of the season. I will take it. Um, finally, Mark, what do you think the score is going to bring against I, Forest away? I, I, I have to agree with Joe. I think it's going to be two all. And, and I, I know it's being a bit, um, bit negative, but I think going into these games now with the injuries and with certainly with Forest on the ascendancy, um, I think we will be good to get a point um, up there. Um, yeah, it's it's a weird season, but I think you've just got to... And, and we're lowering our expectations, you see, naturally, in response to what's happened. So um, we're kind of uh, almost protecting ourselves by, by being happy with the draw. Weird, isn't it? Yeah, I think, um, but I think it's a natural thing to do because I think, um, you know, all things considered, it's probably going to be the safe bet. Um, but I've got to go with my, my heart and I'm going to say... Brighton 17, Nottingham for now, of course not. Um, it's, I think it'll be a close game. I'm probably going to go for a draw, but I'm going to go 1-1. I'm going to go basically a repeat of what we've seen today. Brighton managed to score early and Nottingham Forest uh, get back into it. Mm. There you go. Let's Mark, hope... before we sign off, sorry, Tom. Sorry, Tom, I know you're about to do your spiel. Where can we find and when can we get your book? And we'll leave the link in the description for our lovely viewers to go and purchase. That's very kind of you. Um, you can get it on Amazon. It's quite easy. I think there's a few copies in Brighton Waterstones as well. Um, just be more mosquito. And I want to say thanks for inviting me on your podcast. It's been really oh, wow. fun. Um, and also I want to give a couple of shouts out, if that's all right. Um, Alex yeah, and Nads, you. who are my fellow season ticket holders, and we go to all the games. Also, one thing I've learned and love about going to the Amex is that just make friends with all the people around you and they become kind of a second family. And 
especially when you're not from here. So, you know, I'm from London originally, but we have Chris and Lee um, and Jess in front of us, and we have Emma and Chris next to me. And part of the fun of going to the games isn't just obviously the football, but it's catching up with those people and we're all on WhatsApp group together. And we, if we have one ticket spare or they do, we all sort of mix and match and, and get involved. And I don't know, there's something about that stadium and the club with the community vibe and the friends that you make and um yeah it's and mikey hollywood who just sits sits along so we just yeah big shout out to it. well everyone at the amex really because it, it's a really special atmosphere but certainly the people around us who make it even more thrilling and even more exciting and sometimes even more we can share our frustrations with people around us um and have beers afterwards and at the end of the day it's it's just a phenomenal team to support great community and we can have all these conversations like we've had tonight off the back of it very well said mark very well said football is so much more than just a game um just before we do sign off i just want to let you know that the albion obsessed team are taking part in movember so we have a movember page set up and um, so if you are able to any donation towards the movember cause which is raising awareness of men's mental and physical health um, is greatly appreciated. Even a simple retweet, um, as Mark has already alluded to, can go a really long way in just um, you know ending the stigma of men's mental health. So a massive, massive thank you and well done to the AL, AL team uh, for their continued hard work there. Still got another, what, oh, 17 days to go. So, Joe, your moustache is looking rather lovely. So it's, it's, it's awful in person. The camera does it justice. It's... I, I cannot grow facial hair. You, you, you're lucky. You're lucky. I will I will take it. But remember, it's all for a, a very good cause. So that's the last little plug from me. Thank you very much to Joe, Sony, and of course, don't forget, Mark. Don't forget One Clop Yvette. Shop. And don't forget to check out One Clop Shop where you can get amazing 10% discount from vintage football shirts if you enter the code ALBIANOBSESSED, all one word, all uppercase you can grab yourself a bargain there as well. So thank you very much, listeners. Thank you very much, cast. We will see you next time, wherever you may be, whenever you may be. Take care.